This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 263. And the quote of the day is from Christopher Reeve, who said, Either you decide to stay in the shallow end of the pool, or you go out into the ocean. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's up, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and this is one that has taken me a long time to line up. A lot of them do. Uh, Ray and I have been going back and forth for a very long time, but I'm super excited to have him on here for a few reasons. One, he has an amazing story of how he just up and moved to LA when he was 18 years old. So we get into that. He's from Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. That is cool as well. And he ha- he works closely with MI and had close- worked closely with MI, I should say, as an instructor, still goes back to do clinics and things like that. And MI is an education partner of Drummer's Resource. So a lot of things tying together here with Ray, but the message of his enthusiasm of him staying humble, even though he's in one of the biggest bands in the world uh, is just amazing to me. And he has a lot of great insight about how he had to change the way that he plays and how he thought he was really happening. And turns out that he wasn't at the time. And so he hit the woodshed and, uh, and, and really buckled down and, and, you know, turned into the drummer that he is so an awesome awesome conversation with ray super stoked to have him and i'm not going to waste any time we're going to get right into it with the one and only ray luzier ray what's going on my man thank you for doing this i appreciate it i appreciate you guys having me on man it's a pleasure it's uh i've said this before but that's literally the same thing i say in the beginning of every single episode but i mean it genuinely but it just like naturally comes out but i say the same thing every single time so and i should i should answer it like that it really sucks to be here man you're taking <laughs> up my time yeah man. i really didn't want to do that and make sure the check clears uh for for having me on uh so a couple things first of all i gotta get in so how do you pronounce your last name is it luzier yeah luzier you said it right. It's well, it's weird because like if you see the name Frazier, it's Zier. So right. I spell my name L U Z I E R. It sounds like Zier as well. You know, it should be, but it's Zier, like lose ear. Right. And yeah. the reason why I asked, I've heard your name said multiple different ways, and it's like I had Steve Ferroni on the podcast. Same thing with him. I had yeah. Carmine Appease on. Same way with him. Yeah. Well, you know, I moved to L A. and this guy, I went. I attended the Musicians Institute, and uh, I was naive right off the farm when I was eighteen. And uh, one of my one of my locker mates, uh, one of them was Chad Smith, which we'll get into that later. But uh, one of the other guys was like, um, "Wait, what's your last name?" And I go, "Luzier." He goes, "Wrong. What's your middle name?" And I go, "Lee." He's like, "Raymond Lee. That's your that's a rock star name." He goes, "No one's gonna be able to say Luzier." And I'm like, "I'm proud of my last name, man. We're gonna keep it." And right. sure enough, a whole life it's just been. You know, I should have went to Raymond Lee. <laughs> well, I mean, you gotta have, uh, you know, you gotta have the the rock star name, but also it sort of separates you too. You know, if you have yeah. like if you have a really hard name to pronounce, it's right. sort of it's. I mean, not that you do, but like if you have yeah. some crazy last name, then it's sort of like it works in your favor. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> now my wife, we got married uh, last June, and she's uh, putting up with all the BS for that now. She's like, great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Changing everything and trying yeah. to figure all that out. That's always fun. So uh, you mentioned, you know, 
fresh off the farm. So I know that you're you're from Pittsburgh. So were you like where'd you grow up? Downtown Pitts, Pittsburgh, like Pittsburgh proper, or way out in the boonies, man? Like a 118 acre farm in a place called West Newton, Pennsylvania. Mm, I've heard of it. Newton, yeah, yeah. Um, very small town. Uh, we didn't have a neighbor for a mile. We had a mile dirt road, and then really that wasn't yeah, yeah, man. It was like <clears throat> when I people say they're out in the boonies. I was out in the boonies because mm. even the surrounding land around the 118 acres was abandoned coal mines. And it was like, I would ride my motorcycle in these really bad places. I shouldn't have been, you know, but it's like, you don't really know any other life, you know? And my, right. I remember going to my friend's house in like fifth or sixth grade going, there's a person living right next to you. And he's like, well, yeah, that's how most people live. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, nah, cause look, I don't have a neighbor. So for a long time, it took me a while to get used to that, you know? Um, right. But yeah, it's it's and you could play your you know, no one ever complained about my bad drumming. Uh <laughs> it was uh you know, just playing along the Zeppelin Kiss, Ozzy Rush, A C D C you name it. All mm. anything I could steal off my sister. She was five years older than me. And uh no one taught me anything. Um my uncle gave me a snare drum and then uh it just went from there. I saw him in the marching band, he played bass drum and I just started watching like solid gold and late night shows and anything I could see that. And I remember seeing the Beach Boys drummer and he played left hand lead. And I remember looking at him going, OK, hey, I'm right handed, but I guess that's how you play. So I think that's why to this day I kind of play ambidextrous because right. I'm always leading, bashing with my left hand. And then if it's a lot of technical stuff, I cross over. Mm-hmm. Um that's It's funny. That's Carter Beaufort plays the same way. And mm-hmm. for the same reason, he saw somebody playing on television and was like, Oh, I should, I need to be playing this. So he set up his drums backwards and that's how. And so then once he figured it all out, he was like, well, I'm playing left-hand lead. So I'm going to keep playing open hand. Totally. Yep. But it never really felt natural, especially in a rock gig and especially the heavy band I play now. It's, it's never really felt comfortable crossing over. Um, and, and it all, you know, at the end of the day, when people buy your record, it's, it's all about how's it sound. You know, if you're mm-hmm. with your snare drum and your, and your, uh, it's all about that. No one really cares how you looked or what hand you led with on your record. You know, right? Are you so? Are you are you completely open handed? I, I can be, um, but if I'm doing funkier stuff and a lot of ghosting, I'm always uh, putting Cross. my right hand and you're crossing over, right? Um, just because it feels more comfortable. And, and throughout the years, I tried to. I didn't get into the Simon Phillips thing where he can ghost really good with his right hand. I, mm-hmm. I'm not that good with that stuff. What about the, have you switched it completely around? Cause like I can, I can play a little bit of open hand, but once you switch my feet, forget it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm, there was a time when I had mirror kits. I had a high hat ride and high hat ride. And it just, I was like, all right, this is getting a little, and you know, <laughs> I don't but, need to do all this. <laughs> no, no. Um, so I just, you know, it's whatever's comfortable for me. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I, just throughout the years, I've kind of evolved in this thing. And people watch me play for the first time. They're like, what are you? You're doing this. You're doing that. You're, I'm like, yeah, I just – it's just a feel thing, you know, sure. after all these years. You know, so. So talk – you mentioned like growing up on this farm and, and sort of being out in this – you know, being out in the quote-unquote boonies. And like where I grew up, I grew up in a small town, Pennsylvania, same deal. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't that sparse, but I mean I had a – field across the street from my house cows and everything and it's like and the downtown area is a steel town you know so it's i feel like we maybe sort of had the same type of of um of upbringing and so when you were there and as you started to 
you know, get into drumming and all that, were, were you like, man, I really got to get out of this town or did you love the town? But you were like, I have to get, I have to, were you running, a, did you run away from the town or did you run towards the music? You know, you're, you're too young. I think at that age, um, you know, not many people know the lifestyle of waking up and bailing a field of hay, taking a shower and then going to school. It's like, right. that's farmer's life is a whole totally different life and it's different work ethics and there is no such thing as like a nine to five it's there's always something to do and we just lived on the farm it wasn't our farm right uh and but there was so much to do that it was endless and i think you know it's hard for the quote normal person to understand that especially a city guy forget it sure uh so but then my allergies got so bad that i think it got me out of a lot of work because every time (laughs) you know my eyes would swell shut and I'd be out in the hay field with just pollen and fresh cut grass and hay. And my mom would be like, just, just go to your room. Just get, well, my drums were in my room. So, nice. and my sister always thought I was getting out of work and I'm like, no, I just, I just, I can't look at me. I, you know, I can't do I can't, anything. Can't breathe. So I, I would just get up there and I would just steal her Ted Nugent records and just play along and, you know, anything I could to try to figure this out, you know, and it mm-hmm. kind of just took over. So I didn't really know at a young age, you know, what, I just I knew at a young age I'd be doing this the rest of my life. I did. Uh-huh. I, knew, I knew in my early teens that it was that strong. Like it took over so strong that I was like, I don't care if I'm uh, rich, poor, in a famous band, and uh, you know, playing street buckets. I'm gonna be doing this. You know. So right. when you take an oath like that at an early age, um, my first rock band. You know, I did the whole jazz concert symphonic marching band through high school. Mm-hmm. So then I started, you know, understanding the values of quarter notes and eighths and sixteenths and subdivisions and you know uh i started getting my time together a little bit but my guitar player at the time he was from mount pleasant pennsylvania okay and um he was like man we got to get out of here we we need to get out of this town we're not going to do anything here Mm -hmm. and i'm like well that's great let's go to new york it's close by and he's like no no man we need to go to la there's a school called musicians institute it's you know paul gilbert was our neighbor he lived 10 minutes from us oh really really yeah and his dad used to modify my guitar player's martial heads. So it's this weird story like that. And uh, right at the time we were talking about L.A., Paul got the Mr. Big gig. Oh, and okay. Now him and Billy Sheehan and Pat mm-hmm. Torpy and all that. And uh, So we just started, you know, he's like, we need to go there. I'm like, it's 2,600 miles away. We can't go out, you know. Right. So long well, so story. Were, were you, at first, sorry to cut you off, but how old were you at the time? And were you already like, were you gigging? there oh mildly i mean we we did some like local gigs around town where my dad had to stand at the entrance because i was too young to play these clubs you know right. um very mild stuff it wasn't like we were these touring band you know mm-hmm. um but we we both had at the time the same passion i mean he was he was really into the inve momstein thing and george lynch and, and all the shredding guys you know right. and, have you so ever we, have you ever seen Ingve momstein in concert oh many times yeah i almost so, played with him really yeah, I got real close to playing with a guy. Yeah. I because I went and saw him once, and he had I thought it, uh, the most amazing. First of all, you know he's an amazing guitar player, but you go and after every song, he would walk over to the mirror on the stage, and he would fix his hair in the mirror, and then come back out and just shred again. And I was like, that is like that is to- that whole thing goes together. What's wrong with that man? Like, <laughs> what, is there something wrong with that? No. I don't see. Uh, yeah, he uh, with his little spandex and tassels. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I got all these. Remember back when there were tape machines mm-hmm. before there were electronic. I have all these old micro cassettes with all these rock stars that called my phone when I moved to L.A. 
of Inves on three of them because he's got my number off uh, Mike Varney from Shrapnel Records. And he's drunk out of his mind talking about Ian Pace. And I just I kept all these. Oh, my God. I would oh, love dude, to hear I, those. I got from CC DeVille, Don Dockin, uh all these. I have this most, most random 80s eclectic collection. I'm going to make an instrumental record someday, and I'm just going to put like. Have all that in the background. It's <laughs> subliminally. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, going back to that, you know, my guitar player did. We ended up taking the test for PIT and GIT. Mm-hmm. We passed it, which I didn't think I would because I didn't know jazz. I don't know Latin, funk. I, I was just totally street taught there, you know, or, you know, mentally from records. Right. What were you, what kind of stuff were you playing? Just everything. I, like I said, the like kiss was like my, my, no one really tells you on a farm what to listen to, you know? Sure. I just knew that like when I put on back in black, that moving pictures was way harder to play. And I was like, why can't I figure out? I don't know what, what's going on on Tom Sawyer, but when I play highway to hell, it's, I'm just laying it down. Right. You know? So, you know, and then, we moved, we packed up, I bought this church van off of my local church for 1500 bucks. gutted it. It was a 15-passenger van. We loaded it up with marshals and kick drums falling out the back. Literally, my parents made a road trip out of it. We, we like went to, you know, saw the Grand Canyon, went to Vegas, did this whole thing on our way out there so they could leave me the van and then fly back and we'd start our whole thing. Nice. So that's pretty much what happened. You know, it was it was 118-acre farm to Hollywood Boulevard. Wow culture shock just a hair man you know yeah it was like there was nothing uh i didn't like i said i don't know what a neighbor was let alone someone above below on the sides and i was i wasn't locking my doors i was just leaving everything wide open and right my friends my neighbors like dude you're gonna get robbed i'm like why because i just <laughs> i didn't know you right know, they're like start locking your doors what's wrong with you when you and, get there though are you like holy shit like what did we do oh dude it was i i couldn't i, I think back now and i I called my mom like in the last couple of years. I'm like, what, what were you guys thinking? You dropped me off in Hollywood. There was crack addicts everywhere. There was freaking, you know, it was like. And how old were you? I was 18, right out of high school. <laughs> my guitar player waited until I graduated. Two months later, boom, we packed and, and went across. And uh, and she goes, well, Raymond, we knew you had a good head on your shoulders and we knew you'd make the right decision. And she was right. I, I didn't. I'm one of those weirdos that never has done a drug in my life. And I'm right. been in the rock business Never did anything. Never smoked a joint. Never smoked a cigarette. I like my red wine. That's about the only thing I do. You know? Right, right. But uh, not preaching, but it, it's, it is stupid, kids. Don't do it. Um, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I'm with but, you on the red wine, too. That, that's yeah. actually why we're in California. My wife works in wine, so it would be, be blasphemous if I, didn't, if I didn't drink red wine. So. I mean, you got to talk later about getting some vino. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. Um, but so anyway, there was a year program at the time. Um, so... You know, it was very hardcore, man. I mean, I had the staff at that time was insane. I had Joe Picaro, mm-hmm. Ralph Humphrey, uh, Casey Shirell, Efren Toro, Richie Garcia, Jeez. Tim Pedersen. I mean, dude, the staff was like, I got my ass handed to me to put it lightly. I sure. mean, because I, I was just this punk off the farm. I, I just like, they'd be like, man, your timing's not that, that good. And you're, and you're, can you play swing? I'm like, check this out. And I'm like playing these fast licks and <laughs> check out my feet. And they're like, yeah, that beat thing ain't going to get you a gig. I'm like, yes, it, yes, it will. And I was just, because I didn't know, you know. Sure. And they're like, you need to and buy could you a- read at the time or anything? Huh? Could you read at the time? I knew basics. I, I sure. didn't know, you know, I couldn't he put a chart in front of me, no way. But I right. knew values of notes. But uh, the guy, I remember like Joe Picaro coming behind me. He was such a gentle, great teacher. He's like, look at you, kid. God bless you. You're, you're gripping your stick so tight. You're going to, 
you're going to hurt yourself. He goes, you need to loosen your grip. And he's, I still thank Joe to this day, because if you see me with corn, it looks like I'm annihilating everything in front of me. I'm so relaxed back there. It's ridiculous. And right. I have a, it has a lot to do with Joe Poe because he shot, you know, taught me the forum, uh, a fulcrum grip mm. and really being loose, but getting a loud, powerful sound out of just a tap. And it just, right. it always stuck with me and, and uh, knock on everything. I've never had a hand problem when I'm 46. So I think uh, that nobody, not that nobody realizes, but it's not talked about a lot that that volume doesn't come from strength. It comes from height. So yes. like all these guys are like, I got to play louder. So I got to hit harder. And it's like, no, you just got to, you just need more height. You yep, need, you know, it's just, it's inertia. Yeah, and it's all about the, the, just the way you hit. That's why if you get 10 drummers in a room with the exact same kit and y'all have them play back in black, they're going to sound 10 different ways just because mm-hmm. somebody's going to be cracking their snare harder. Someone's going to be laying into their kick. Someone's going to be too heavy on the hats. There's, that's, that's what, that's why we have our own individuality because, you know, after a while, you kind of conform into what you are as a as a musician. Right, right. So as you're so you're you're at MI. Where, where what were you talking about with Chad Smith? <laughs> yeah, funny story. So, uh, you know, we do the whole orientation thing, and uh, you know, the, I'm just scared. I had no. I'm scared, but I'm excited because I'm like away from the farm now, and I'm like, this is uh, this is going to happen. I don't care what happens, but I know I'm going to do this. I don't know what this is yet, but right. I know something's going to happen. And uh, they said, okay, you know, orientation and, you know, no one knows anybody. Stand up and shake the guy's hand next to you. Well, I stood up and the, this guy went that way and this guy went that way. And I was like, great, standing there by myself. <laughs> I look over, four people down, and this guy named Chad was doing the same thing. And I go, hey, man, what's up? I'm Riggs. I'm Chad. You want to share a locker room together because you, you share these symbol things and uh-huh. whatever. And that's what happened. We went up and uh, shared a locker. And he, he's like, man, I got, you know. I, I got some auditions coming up, and I'm like, "What do you mean auditions? Just, we're at school, man. You gotta, you gotta learn stuff." And he's like, "Of course, but I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go try out for bands." And I'm like, "How do you do that? Because I don't, I don't know anybody. You know, I don't know." Right. A couple of weeks into it, we're at the Funk Live Playing Workshop, Funk LPW, and he's just freaking, oosh, oosh, he's just laying it down. So th- I'll never forget the sound, the meat coming off the drums. It was just so thick, and and I'm playing, and and like, you know. I'm like, I play something. I'm like trying to sneak in all these fills. And, and uh, Takanu Mazawa, he used to play for 13 Cats, Prince's band years ago. Mm-hmm. And great funk drummer, Japanese guy. And Chad would get done and, and, and Taco would be like, you need to be gigging. You need to be out there gigging. And I'd be like, what about me? He's like, you need to get a metronome. <laughs> what are you talking about, dude? Did you see that lick? Did you see that freaking? He's like, that lick's not going to get you a gig. Yeah. Again, I'm 18. Off, I'm naive. I'm, you know. My professor in college always used to call them CGLs, chick getting licks. He's like, they may get you a chick, but they're not gonna get you a gig. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, that was, and it's weird. So anyway, a couple of weeks goes by. He goes, hey, I got this gig. I got this audition for a band called Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I'm like, what a stupid name. <laughs> come on, you know. It and, is. and 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 he came. He didn't come back for like two months. He come back to get his stuff. I'm like, dude, what happened? He's like, I got, I got the gig, man. I'm like, he's like, I'm out of here. I'm like, what about school? Right. <laughs> He's like, nope, I'm out of here. Thirty years later, he's you know still one of the top drummers of the world and killing it, and the band still. You never know what's going to happen, you know. Yeah. yeah, I actually had I've had Chad on on the show twice, but I just hung with him in Philly um, about whatever, like a month and a half ago. But he has, you know, he has a kit backstage, and yeah. so we're just sitting there talking, and then he just starts playing, and even then, just like 
he he sits down and plays the drums and he sounds like Chad Smith. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like and somebody was like, "Oh, like I don't I don't see what the the hype is about him." And I'm like, "Man, I I just watched an hour and a half show of his like yeah. right next to him and it's just like I don't know. I, I like you can't you can't replicate the stuff that the sound that he has and just like how he hits the drums and everything. Yep. It's like he's Chad Smith, you know. Yep. And that's that's the thing. That's what I always tell people students. I'm like, they're like, how do you get your own sound? I'm just I'm ripping off Bozio. Or I'm ripping off the, you know Portnoy. Or I'm ripping off all these people. I'm like that's fine to do that. Take the influence if they if they touched you in a certain way. It's okay to emulate them for a bit, but cert- sooner or later you're gonna have to morph into your own thing, and it, and it will come out of you. It's just a it's just a you know a matter of what you know. Right. So with all the people telling you, look, you need to work on your time. You need to uh, you need yeah. to you need to not do all these licks and all that stuff. What? Because that's a that's a growing process. It's a tough thing to go through because you're like, yeah. I'm the man. I have all this. Oh. I have all these. So how mentally, like, how did you deal with that? How did and then how did you how did you fix that? It sucked. I mean, there, there, at the time, there was an old MI building across Hollywood Boulevard. And there was two double bass labs left over there. And there was a couple of performance classes. But most of the school was going into this new building. And uh, I kind of rebelled a little bit. Um, I, just, I was like, oh, yeah, well, and me, this other Swedish guy, I never know what happened to him. But we'd just be able to all day just, just trying to play, see how fast we could play. And, like, everyone thinks, like, because I was a teacher at MI that, that I aced all my tests and I was just – I barely got through that school, man. I, barely, I mean, I made 76s on reading and didn't have 75 to pass. I made 76 on reading. I'll never forget. Well, I think we all play that comparison game where you see somebody and you're like, I'm, n- I'm never going to be that good or yeah. I'm never going to get a gig like that. Or they must have something that I don't. They're better than me, yeah. whatever it is. And it's just it's work. But go ahead. I, yeah. I, no, it, and, it, and it's just so I, you know, I don't know what happened, but I was just like, uh, it, it, the MI is the kind of thing where to this day you go back through your books and go, oh, man, I remember when Ralph Humphrey was talking about this. And, you know, you go through his, even the odds books because you, you're having trouble counting in nine or you're having, you know, something comes up. You're like, and I'm still referring in 2017 way back to those books in 88 and 89. And uh, so it's a lifelong giving thing. Um, it was overwhelming. Because they crammed everything into that one-year trade school. Now you can get a full-blown degree. You can right. get a full four-year. There's scholarship stuff. There's all this stuff. So, um, it, it, it. But the thing is, when I went there, I was always complaining about there's no rock programs because right. they were yeah. Anyway, I had Steve Houghton's big band jazz class. Are you kidding me? Hit throw a chart for me. Go one, two, one, two, three, four, <laughs> and I'm just like, huh. Like, are you kidding me? I'm reading it. You missed the figure. Hey, you missed that. Hey, you missed this. I'm like, of course I did. I don't even know what I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm not so, even looking at the paper. I'm just true. making it. It's like, you know, uh, so it's, it's, it was overwhelming. And it was like, and I was always the one bitching about to Ralph and Joe because they were the heads of the PIT at the time. I'm like, where's the rock guy? Where's it? Well, this guy kind of teaches rock. And he kind I'm like, yeah, but I, I know I'm going to do this. First. I mm-hmm. love learning all this stuff. And. Lord knows I couldn't play swing or, or a bossa nova when I went to MI, you know. Um, but I wanted, I knew that I wanted to hone in on what I love. And that's, right. I'm a rocker at heart forever. And uh, anyway, uh, two years goes by. I'm trying to get gigs. I got a part-time teaching thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm working for um, stuffing envelopes for a merchandising company because I wanted to stay in the business. So mm-hmm. I 
I was going to get mail back when there was fan mail um, right. and all this stuff. And Ralph Humphrey calls me up and he goes, hey, man, would you be interested in coming down here and, and teaching some stuff? And I'm like, I'm, I'm 22. And he's like, yeah, but there's a lot of got kids that are, I remember you, you, you know, all the double bass stuff. Would you be if you write some curriculum and we like it, we'll hire you. So that's what happened. I went I was blown away because like people are coming into the class going, where's the teacher? Like looking past me. And I'm like, right. Uh, it's me. I know I'm young, but but I, Ed, I was you have a you have a young face. I mean, I remember seeing pictures of you like even a couple of years ago, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, man, he looks he looks young to to get Thanks. the corn gate. Like, I mean, you do you. I think I have, I actually have the same thing. Like people are like, how old are you? Twenty five. I'm like, no, I, I don't look seventy six. Right. 76. No, you don't look seventy six. You look great. You don't look a day over <laughs> fifty five. But uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So you, so you can imagine, you know, there's people that are 40 year old students that have right. raised their family. Now they want to take drums and they're walking in seeing this punk kid going, wait a minute. And so here I am trying to prove myself where, you know, OK, here, let's do some steady double bass. So that's what happened. It went from three hours to 33 hours. But I knew that I wanted to start getting sessions and touring. I would get little record deals here and there. I signed to a uh, record label called Shrapnel Records. That was my first official thing I did. Mm -hmm. It's called 9.0, and it's, uh, the album's called Too Far Gone. That's the first record I ever did. I was 19 on it. Um, and I went on to do about eight or nine more of those Shrapnel kind of shredder guitar hero records. Um, didn't make a dime off of them, but it was stepping stones. You know? sure. It was one of those, like, uh, build were, your resume. You were know? you ever worried when you were at MI that you weren't going to you weren't going to tour. You weren't going to do that. Like you would get too caught up in in the teaching side of it. I did because, um, and the thing is, I'm still like not that good of a reader today. Like I, it's funny because um, when my band, when Corn actually found out several years into me, you know, them making me a member of the band, I remember a Fieldy, the bass player, going, "Wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you used to teach at a music school?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah. What's that? Doesn't what's that matter?" And he's like, "So you know how to like read and stuff?" And I'm like. <laughs> Kind of, you know, it's not a big deal. I play from here. I play from the heart. You know, right. it's like I'm, I'm still street, even though I kind of have some knowledge. And He's I know like, you know how to read. I let you into my home. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> hey, man, because those there's five punks from Bakersfield. I mean, they did. They knew a couple notes on a guitar, a couple beats, and they sold 40 million records. I mean, people right. don't realize that. You know, it's like the, it's a it's kind of a big deal. Um, so, yeah, it was. I still play 100% from the heart, man, even though I know what a 16th-note triplet is and I know how to play odd time and I know how to get out of certain things. I still play 100% from the heart, you know? Right. Support from this podcast comes from DW Drums, and DW has been supporting this podcast for quite a long time, and I'm excited about it for numerous reasons. One, they make great products. Two, they support drumming initiatives all over the world, much like this podcast. And just the other day, I was at Dub's Drum Basement here in Livermore, California, and found the PDP Concept Kit with a 26-inch bass drum, and this thing is <laughs> amazing. I'm actually going to be picking up a set uh, that I'll do some videos about it, but I want you to just go online and just Google the PDP concept made by DW. And I want you to check this out and let me know what you think of them. Cause they sound amazing. There's some videos floating around of Dave Elitz playing them and things like that. So just go check them out. Uh, or just go to dwdrums.com or just Google DW PDP concept. Check them out. They're awesome. 
Speaking of awesome, you can now revisit the golden era of drumming with the new Evans 1956 calf tone. They're made in New York from advanced synthetic materials and fitted with Diodario's level 360 technology. These Evans 56 calf tone deliver the warm, familiar sound you love with the quality and consistency that a modern drummer demands. You can learn how you can get that calf tone sound at evansdrumheads.com. You know, they say the technique isn't everything, but with a bad technique, you can be setting yourself up for failure. And you can tackle your technique hangups by having experts address topics like grip, independence, coordination, mobility, and creativity. And the drum technique courses offered by the drum program at Musicians Institute will set you on the right path to growth. To learn more, you can visit mi.edu, Musicians Institute, instrumental in life. Now more from Ray Luzier. I wanted to go back briefly. Um, you were so you were talking about like how everybody was yelling at you about your time and about this and about that. What tactically, like, what did you do? Did you just get with a metronome and and try to like set your ego aside and just play with records, or how did how did you? Yeah, I mean, work on that. That's that's exactly it. Like at the time, I thought I was all that, you know, and, and it's it's. I wish they could. I always tell people I could speed up, speed up anyone's process. The, punkers that are coming up that are 18 to 25 like take the advice more seriously i didn't really take it that seriously I'm like because i didn't understand i, I played to a metronome and go what i can play to this but i didn't understand that it takes time to build time inside you right i didn't, I didn't never i could never feel what the teachers were talking about like talking to mazawa come over and t- tap on my shoulders like where are you feeling the time i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about man right. and he's like well no there's a there's a thing there's a there's like a little bounce and if you the bounce is that sometimes the time's in your shoulder, sometimes it's in your leg. And I'm like, dude, I have no idea anything. You know, you're speaking a different language. So it took me years to understand, like, oh, I'm actually, you know, I got hired for a couple gigs where, like, you know, you're, why'd I get this gig and not the other 50? And they're like, because your timing was better. And I'm like, how can my really? timing be better where all the humans, our hearts are all beating at different, you know. And I tell that to up and coming drummers too. have patience with it because I'm still working on my time. I'll still watch videos of me going, man, I had too much coffee that day or I had, you know, I didn't sleep enough or whatever. Right. So, you know, I don't know what, what the crossover was, but I remember like my first band, them telling me we're going to play the whole album to a click and it scared the hell out of me because I'm, I'm really a big fan of Dean Casanova, especially at that time. Dean was on all these shrapnel records and, uh, mm-hmm. I really loved the way his fire and just the chops and he was so leaning forward and so much what I wanted to be at the time. And uh, and I remember the singer going, well, if you can't play the album to a click, we'll just get Dean to do it. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it was, like, it was like a mini threat. And I was like, wow, I'm going to I locked myself in a lab for like six hours a day and played the material. And there's no way someone was going to replace me that, you know, I could finally I just wanted one CD, you know, I didn't, let alone you know everything I've been on. So. <laughs> right, right, right. But. It, it's setting the ego and all that stuff aside. It was, you still kind of like, well, what am I doing? I don't, you know, I, have to, I still have to educate myself on the business. I still don't know the right connections. I still don't, you know, I still know what I'm really doing. So, right. um, there's a lot of stuff all piled into one, you know, I'm playing, I'm paying to play, but I remember we're doing gigs in LA and, uh, the guitar players like, okay, it's 800 bucks for uh, Thursday night at 815. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. We're getting 800 bucks. That's 200 a piece. And he's like, no, 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 we pay them 800. And here's your tickets. You got to sell these, these. And if you sell all these, that's 200 bucks. And I'm like, 
Yeah. So yeah, people wait, don't. What? I don't think people. L.A. That's a that's a abnormal thing, except for in L.A. The pay to play thing. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. We'll just kind of go off on a side for a minute. Insane, man. It's like, you know, I'm loading my drums in, you know, me with this big dumb kit, you know, with two kick drums. And, and I remember like, you know, we're playing the country club, which is no longer existing out there. And uh, 815 and there was about 12 of our friends with five bartenders and just thinking we conquered the world. And I never forget, like, we got done. And I'm like, yeah, we, we just killed everybody. And I'm like, and I and I never forget this guy comes running over and goes, Hey, get your shit off the stage. And I'm like, oh, my. Oh, that's right. And so I'm like running with my kick drums because the next band was getting ready to set up. And I'm like, so wait, we just played in front of 12 people. And I just wrote a check for 200 bucks because I didn't know anybody. You couldn't sell tickets. Right. And I'm like, wait, what, what's going on? So that took a while to understand, you know. But then my band started selling out places and getting more popular. So you have to really put the work in. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Right. It's, it's amazing when they... So like in we used to do um, the early days of my band in Philly, we would play clubs and they would give you tickets to sell, but you could return the tickets that you didn't sell. But oh. in L.A., you buy the tickets up front or you, oh, yeah. you know, or they give you the tickets and they say, these are yours. It's $800 worth of tickets. If you sell three or if you sell all of them, it yeah. doesn't matter. You still owe us the 800 bucks for the ticket. Absolutely, because they want to cover their ass. They don't want to be without, you know, they don't want to lose anything that night. So. It's such an insane concept though it is it's like so years of that and it just i finally was like okay i was in two kind of failed original bands and i was like i need this audition a lot of my friends are auditioning for gigs i need to get a bigger high profile gig you Mm -hmm. know so i kept auditioning for all these pop bands and stuff that i wasn't really into how were you finding the auditions um through there's a there's this guy named barry squire who a lot of drummers know in la He's one of those talent scout kind of guys mm-hmm. where he's just like, he's, everybody knows Barry in, in like up and coming member of Meredith Brooks. Yeah. I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a, whatever that song. I auditioned for her. And I remember like, she would specifically call people like Barry and go, Hey, I need a band put together. And he would just boom, get on the phone. Now you're in a cattle call with 50 to a hundred drummers. You're all playing the same dumb three songs. You're playing the same dumb beats. And you're like, what do I have that that guy doesn't have? You know? Right. I mean, right. I got turned down because my biceps weren't big enough. I got turned down because I wasn't black. I got turned <laughs> down because I wasn't have dreadlocks. I got, I mean, you name it, man. It was like, there's, there's gigs where I went in and I know I nailed it. And I'm like, you guys did, did, did you didn't feel any of that? And they're just like, hey, it's okay, man. We're, to be honest, man, we're looking for someone about six inches taller. And I'm like, I'm 5'11. What do you want? You right. So, I like the biceps. <laughs> dude, I, I can't mention the artist because he's really famous right now and I'd get killed if I mentioned him. But, he actually, they were all kind of beefcaked out, and I was super skinny at the time. And he walked over to me, and he, he grabbed my bicep right before I started playing. And he goes, hey, man, I want you to hit those drums, all right? And I went, oh, you did <laughs> not just say that. And I'll, just out of spite, I'm not recommended to do this, but I flipped the butt ends of the sticks over, and they all come in on the kit. Like, they all walked in on me, and I was like, oh, oh you shouldn't have done that either. And I just... I wound up as hard as, and they all just kind of like went, uh, and they all kind of like stood back one by one. And they're like, wow, I didn't realize you had that much sound coming. I'm like, and I, but I was already done with that gig. I'm right. guys really judging me by my arm size. I was like, come on. <laughs> I mean, you in LA, it's, every, it's, it's showbiz, man. So it's it just, I used to think like, I'm going to lock myself in a room and practice six hours a day and play with my band all night, get so good that no one will be able to turn me down. That's not true. You, 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 yeah, it's going to help you 
you know, get better at what you're doing. Right. That's not going to get you all these gigs. It's mm-hmm. so much about networking. It's so much about you fitting the the actual part of the band. You know. Right. Was Barry at MI when you were when you were working? Because he's at MI now, right? He is. I mean, he, he's actually teaching a class there now, um, or several. Uh, he wasn't there. He was just a strictly a talent scout. You know. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So I think I want to say that he helped me get the Jakey e. Lee gig. Um, when I turned 24, um, I heard that I'm such a huge Ozzy Osbourne fan, mm-hmm. and I heard that Jake. I was a big Badlands fan, which is Jake's band after Ozzy. And I'm like, dude, I gotta. I heard he is having auditions, and I'm like, uh, I don't know if I called Barry or somebody like that called me, and he goes, yeah, but there's like 150 drummers going, you know. And I'm like, so what? I gotta, you know. So. And I always say this to drummers to try to give people tips. What's going to separate you from the other 150 drummers? Try to do your homework, do your research. Like when I went for Jakey e. Lee, I learned the entire Aussie catalog that he played on. I learned both Badlands records. I tried to research, you know, whatever I could. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> when I showed up that day, I'll never forget, I was number 50 of the day. And Jake was literally on his amp with his head in his hand like, oh, God, here we go. And I'm like, what's your name? I'm like, Ray. And he goes, all right, which song am I going to start with? I'm like, actually, can we play one of the Badlands ones? He's like, no, let's just, let's just stick to the three, man. I'm like, oh, man, I really like that song, Soul Stealer. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the bass player kind of perks up, and he's like, he's trying to figure out the part. And Jake's like, no, nah, man, you're playing it wrong. It's like this. Next thing you know, everyone's standing up, and they're not paying attention to the three demo songs that we had to learn. Right. Next thing you know, I'm counting in soul stealer and we're playing that song and it was this new burst of energy. I'm not saying that's the key. That's just, that worked in that situation. Right. 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 There are little things like that you can do. And next thing you know, Jake's like, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, hopefully coming back here. He's like, well, we're down to five drummers and you're one of them. And I'm like, kick ass. Cool. uh, Next day they chased the other four away and I got the gig. I was my first real tour on a tour bus. 22 gigs in a row, no break kind of thing, and, and uh, didn't make much money, but I didn't care. I was on a bus playing drums. You know? Of course, of course. And it's, like you said, of separating yourself from everyone else. You don't have to go in there and, like, do something crazy. You don't have to do cartwheels, but it's like, yeah. don't just, you know, if there's something, whether it's, like, dressing the part, whether it's, like, you know, knowing that the bass player loves German Shepherds, and you say, you know, it's like, whatever, yep. you know, whatever you can to to sort of, yeah. Not like game the system, but make yourself memorable. Let them know yes. that like, hey, man, I care about getting this gig. Yep. You have to stand out, man. I mean, you have to cert- certain and sometimes it's strictly your playing abilities and what you can do and what you can't do. Um, but I've been to so many auditions where it's been down to like, you know, the, the weirdest dumb things, you know. And, right. Uh, so anyway, uh, that lasted three or four years. And I was doing a lot of sessions in the meantime. Like I got called to do a movie soundtrack and I got called to play on someone's record. And like I said, I did many more of those shrapnel records mm-hmm. and the budgets were so low for those that I would learn an entire record, rehearse it a day and then take three days to track it. And that was it. There's a, there's an album called Tony Fredinelli breakneck speed, insane metal thrash kind of stuff. And, uh, he's in third eye blind now, or he was for a while. Um, and I remember learning, trying to cram and memorize all this stuff. And then uh, I had to do a record called Toby Knapp, which was instrumental, another insane kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's a lot of pressure because you don't get a lot of takes. And there was no punches or fixes back then. There was right. no like, ah, 
we'll just lock that up or scoot this over. Yeah, that doesn't. You had to. You had to actually cut. When they called cutting in, like they call it cutting in or punching in, you're actually cutting in. You're cutting the tape. Yep. Like and stitching it in. Yep. That's why I'm really proud of that 9.0 record. I listened to it not long ago, and I'm like. You know, if we're not fixing one dang thing on that record, it's not half bad at 19, you know, because you're right. You know, there's stuff where I'm pushing and pulling and I can feel it, but it's real. It was me. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bummed out these days that we get to fix so much stuff. And there's too many perfect sounding records, especially in the rock and metal world. You know, it's uh, I'm not saying that I don't move and fix mistakes on my records because we do. But I try to let them be as organic as possible. Of course. Of course. I actually uh, 2000. 2011 cut a record and cut it to like two and a half inch tape you yeah. know and we were like hey if uh you know don't screw up because yep. we're not fixing it i love it man we did the corn three record uh with ross robinson the original producer he said uh he goes first of all you're not gonna insult me with a click track on this record and as we said no click tracks and two inch tape and you're gonna play it from start to finish and i was like oh i like it because CDs are too permanent, man. It's like it outlives us all. We're all dead mm-hmm. and gone. These things, somebody, our kids or our grandchildren or whatever are going to be like, you know, whipping these things out going, what is this, you know? So. Yeah. It's amazing to me that just the entire concept of creating something that didn't exist before yeah. and then can it can live on forever, you know? Sure. So like even like you, you're making this record and you make these mistakes or, you know, you keep, you're like, oh, let's just keep it on the record. And like you said, it. It can be around for 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. It's amazing to put something out into the world that has just never existed. Even like this – like we're doing this this conversation. We're having this conversation right now. 100 years from now, hopefully, people can still yeah. listen to it. You know, it's, I, don't, it's, I love the concept of doing that. Absolutely. And, and if you can capture that in its realest form, I think that uh, – I think you're doing, doing yourself a favor and doing everybody else a favor. And I mean, with that, I love the way how much technology is advanced and the records sound so good these days. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love everything we have and it's, it's amazing. I just, there's so much like when you listen to a band and then you go see them live, you're like, oh, why are they so loose and sloppy? And mm-hmm. they don't, that, that's what I love about my band now is because they kind of, they kind of got the, their name being a little bit loose and left field and not playing so perfect and just letting it go there because it's real there's a real mm-hmm. feel about that and it's uh um yeah it's just it's something organic about it you know uh, that i love there's a sort of a time and a place for everything so if you want to put out this like radio pop song then it, ha- it sort of has to be tighter and it has to be you know that's what people are expecting to hear but if you put out you know like you take a steely dan record and listen to it on vinyl and you know there's like some real shit happening on those records that they didn't punch in or fix or you know, yep. whatever that has a whole different life to it. And absolutely. Yep. So, uh, so anyway, so past the, the J gig, I, uh, did a bunch of demos and sessions and I got turned on to this kid named Mike Hartman, which, uh, rest his soul. He's not with us anymore. He died of uh, cystic fibrosis, but I did his record, me and Greg Bizonet, uh, we shared the same record. And, uh, <clears throat> this kid was like this annoying by bi- thick bifocal kid. It just annoyed me at MI all the time. Like, hey, I'm going to go to Steve Vai's house and I'm writing with David Lee Roth. And I'm like, man, you're just name dropping all these people, dude. Just stop, you know. And, right. and so one day he's like, Ray, you're going to do my, you know, two songs on my record and you're going to go to, we're going to Steve Vai's house. I'm like, cool, man. Give me Steve Vai's address. He's like, okay, I'll send it. Next thing you know, I'm driving to Hollywood Hills going to Steve Vai's house. Wow. Right? I'm recording these two songs. Long story short, Dave Roth, um, 
called Steve Vai to write with him. Steve was too busy. He referred Mike Hartman to write with him. Dave heard my playing on this demo and said, who's this guy? I want him to come back because we're going to cut this for vocals because it was cut for instrumental. And uh, that's how I got the Dave Lee Roth gig. I, I did those two songs. I met Dave in, in 97 and uh, played two songs. And I, didn't, I wasn't stressed or, or nervous because this was it. I'm just, I got hired to play with Dave and that's it. Right. <laughs> so he comes in and he's like, what if I ask you to swing this? And what if I ask you to put a fill here? And what if I... And I'm like, why are you asking me these questions, man? It's so weird. I get done with the gig and shake Dave's hand. He's like, hey, kid, you did good. He goes, uh, maybe we'll play again someday. And I'm like, all right. Next day, his, his manager calls me and said, hey, man, you passed with flying colors. And I'm like, pass what? He's like, you got the gig. I'm like, that was my audition? <laughs> he goes, didn't you think it was weird that Dave was asking you about all these? I go, yeah, but I just thought he was a weirdo. I didn't know, you know. He, <laughs> You know, because he was asking me, we're playing like straight double bass. And he's like, all right, shuffle that. And, and it, about Dave Roth, you have your swing has to be super, super strong. He can care mm -hmm. less about how many licks you can play. You got to be able to swing to be in his band. And uh, that led to a crazy eight years. You know, um, I had no idea. I thought I'd just do a tour with him. And um, I called the school of Roth. I learned a lot off that guy. <laughs> so what's the what's the uh, the difference between him? on stage and off stage yeah, put it this way on the lower budget tours would have dave on our bus and having david lee roth as your front man and having him as your roommate two different things <laughs> you, you don't really want to live with the guy um i love the guy to death i'm not going to slam him i mean he's he's kind of bipolar and he's <clears throat> he's got a wicked temper we all do some have worse ones than others but uh right. he is very very eccentric i don't think you could do what he does unless you were you can't be normal to be David Lee Roth. Of course. So with that, the 90 minutes on stage, that was one thing. The other 22 and a half hours, oh, what if I'm, you know, we're, we're switching hotel rooms. We're dropping a bus after two days because it smelled like pine saw. We're, you know, so many things happened in, in some things you're just scratching your head going, this is kind of ridiculous, but okay, he's David Lee Roth. And right. I'm not, so... All right, uh, so tell me, give, tell me, tell me a funny road story. Like, what's one of the funnier things that happened on the road with him? Um, he's got a really hypersensitive nose, like uh -huh. sensitive nose, and uh, you know, we're all gonna die. There's airborne dust mites. You know, it's just it's this weird thing. And uh, one day we had a brand new bus in the middle of nowhere, Texarkana or whatever. When you tell Dave Roth that there's six hours on the drive, five minutes or five hours and fifty five minutes, he's got his backpack leaning towards the door. Where's the Tell, you know, right. Well, someone made a mistake of telling Dave six hours. It was really a 12 hour trip. So all of a sudden I hear, what do you mean? There's another six hours. Like the bass from his voice just resonated through the bunk. Right. He just bunk, you know, all the bunks closing. <laughs> and, uh, and he just, he pretty much had a meltdown and he pulled the bus over and everything that was cloth on the bus, he threw outside onto the road. He threw chairs outside. Everything that was cloth? Cloth. Cause he just, he, it was a brand new bus, but to him, it was a toilet. You know, come on, <laughs> toilet you put me on. And he pretty much had a meltdown, and uh, the poor road manager was running down the abandoned highway trying to get signal because he said he wanted a flight. Well, there's no airports anywhere near. Right. And uh, yeah, poor Bob, the bus driver's day, second day of the job. He's like, man, how often does he do this? And is he going to pay for this? I'm like, yeah, he's going to pay he's for gonna it. He's going to pay for it. <laughs> it just, it was one thing after another, you know, and after a while, I think I quit. Dave's band like four times in eight years and he never would let me quit. He's like, he'd call me up or give me a giant bonus or 
you know, and I, it was, you know, I'm in Ritz Carlton's, I'm making a ton of money. Um, I'm in brand new Prevo buses. I'm playing Hopper Teacher. I'm opening with Hopper Teacher every night that I played in my bedroom in Pennsylvania. Right. And I'm miserable. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You never know what you're going to get. So I was desperately looking for another gig. Um, and then Dave, around year six, made me the MD of the band, which you don't want to be the musical director. <laughs> I mean, because now the guitar player stuff goes down. He's calling you up at 6 a.m. Hey, what's wrong with the guitar player shit? And you're just like, oh. So, yeah, they're like, hey, you're getting a promotion. You're like, I don't want it. I, I, just, I, just, I just want to play drums. I swear I didn't want it. But I, you know, I got, got a lot of money dumped on my check, and you can't say no to that. Sure. So, and just like you're doing the tour anyway. Yeah. And so it's, like yeah, you're already there. I'll take the flack or whatever. And I was, and I I'm good at rehearsing the band and getting vocal, you know, at that time I sang a lot. Uh, and that, 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 he's the one that kicked my ass to have a five way independence. It's one thing having all four limbs going, but holding note, singing, you really got me and singing beautiful girls and all those Van Halen hits and bashing your brains out. Of, that's a whole nother. Yeah. He, he wouldn't take no for an answer. I'm like, Dave, I really can't say, shut up, sing. And that was, <laughs> there was no excuses. Just do it. You know? right. So, uh, and I, love him for that because he kicked my ass. I wouldn't have done it on my own, mm -hmm. you know. So anyway, uh desperately looking for a gig. Fast forward to the NAM show in 05. I'm playing with Billy Sheehan. I did a couple uh, of Billy's solo records, Holy Cow and Cosmic Troubadour. And um I'm playing with Billy and Toshi Ikeda, who was the rhythm guitar for the uh Daily Roth band. Then we're playing and Robert and Dean DeLeo were playing with Steve Ferroni. And uh, and Billy Cobham was there too, and I'm like, why am I on this bill with Billy Cobham, and Steve Ferroni? It's just bizarre. And so Robert and Dean, I'm a huge Stone Temple Pilot fan, right? And uh, they were playing. Uh, it was called Farm Fur, which was this funky band, like '70s. I don't even know how to. Uh, you have to check it out. It's really good. What were they called? Farm Fur, like F U R. I think yes. I'll don't quote. All right, I'll look it. I'll look it up and I'll. It's been a while, uh, and so we're Robert and Dean are watching us. Me, Billy, and Toshi just shredding. I mean, this is an odd time, and we're just blazing. And I'm thinking, man, they hate us, you know, because they're just they're so laid back. And and Robert come up to me after the gig, and he's like, "Hey, man," he's like, "What are you doing right now?" I'm like, "I'm a David Lee Ross band, but I'm really looking for a gig." He's like, "Well, I'm putting a band together with Richard Patrick from Filter." And I was just like, dude, I'm a huge filter fan. Please let me audition for you guys. So in my head, I was like, this is my out. If I get this gig, I'm leaving Dave, you know. And that's pretty much what happened. I got the gig. Uh, he was looking at – they looked at about six or seven drummers, big-name guys too, and uh, which I didn't think I had a chance next to. Uh, again, Robert and Dean's thing was I'm from you – know, they're from Jersey. I'm from Pittsburgh. Richard's from right. Ohio. It was the East Coast thing. Next thing you know – I get I get the gig and uh, I call up Dave and I'm like, hey Dave, you know I've, I got a gig. And he's like, well, kid, the door's always open. If you, he was really nice about it, professional, and I found him a drummer. I gave him uh, Jimmy DeGrasso came in. Oh, right nice. After, yeah, and uh, so anyway, that was my out. Didn't he audition for Chili Peppers? I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought I heard that. I thought I heard that he did. Possible. Before Chad. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. Um. But so anyway, that was. Unfortunately, I'm really proud of that album. If any of your listeners want to check it out, it's called Army of Anyone. And that's one of my records that I can pop in and I'm truly proud of and part of everything that had to do with it. Um, uh, unfortunately, we did one tour and it was short-lived. Um, 
our manager, um, the firm at the time, managed corn. I remember calling my manager going, what the heck, man? Corn's got Joey from Slipknot filling in. They got Brooks Wackerman and Terry Bozio playing the record. They had Mike Borden filling in. What the heck is going on? He's like, yeah, they're looking for a drummer. And David, the original guy, quit. No explanation, just bye. Really? Yeah. And uh, and he and he goes, you know, you should check that out. And this time I had like longer blonde hair. I'm like, I don't have any tattoos. And he's like, David Severia didn't have any. He had a surfer kind of cut. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the dreadlocks. And I'm like, yeah, but there, that's such a unique band. I, I can't join that band. And he's like, just go play with him. Play six songs. It's Joey's last gig in Seattle. I was on a drum clinic tour at the time <clears throat> up the West Coast. Right. He's like, you're off that day. I'm going to rent you a drum kit. So they rented me this really small five-piece DW. And I'm sitting there in an empty arena on Korn's last show of Family Values Tour. Joey's giant kit sitting right behind me. <clears throat> I'm like, this is stupid. Of course, the band's an hour and a half late. The road crew are looking at me like, dude, who are you and why are you here? Get the heck out of here. Right. And I'm like, look, dude, I'm supposed to play a couple songs. And they're like, the band's not going to show up. This is the last show of the tour. And I'm like, great. This is really stupid. This man. is embarrassing. This, dude, is, totally. this is a waste of my time. Monkey comes walking in, eating a sandwich. Sorry, man, it's the last day. We're getting all our stuff packed. That's cool. He goes, what do you know? They gave me six songs to learn. Here we go again with Do Your Homework. You know, Corn's catalog was so huge. I learned 33, probably 35 songs. I was already a fan of them, so I knew the hits. I just wanted to dig deeper. I'm a huge Terry Bozio fan, so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn the entire Untitled record that he played. He just played on right. supporting this record. And I'm a his parts on there are just so cool. I know they were manipulated. And it's not 100% Terry because Atticus Ross and a bunch of people were slicing and dicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <coughs> still, it's Terry. And um, I had Monkey goes, what do you know? And I said, I hand him the list. He's like, you know all these? I'm like, kind of. <laughs> Let's just play the hits. And I'm like, man, I, it's cool. We're playing the hits. And you can watch my audition actually on YouTube if you type in. I've Rain. watched it. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I said, I really love that song, Everbee. He's like, man, it's yeah, all right, let's try it. And when I bust out every beat, it's got all those double bass parts, and it's like, man, it sounds really good. And, and then you can see on the on the audition tape, he's like, he's like, all right, man, because we were gonna go to uh, dinner and talk this over, but uh, you, you got the gig. Welcome to Corn. We'll see you in Dublin. And I was just like, went, yeah, like, <laughs> sure. Like you could see my expression when they told me on camera. I'm just like, oh man, this is gonna be great, cool. But I didn't believe it. I was like. I'm not the drummer of corn. Right. Okay. Maybe they're going to get me as Mr. Temporary guy and I'll do, you know, cause they, you know, and then two months goes by and I don't hear anything. I don't see a set list. I don't see anything. I know we're leaving the beginning of January in uh, 08. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Call the manager. Do I still have the gig? Of course you do. I'm like, I don't, I haven't heard anything. What do I learn? He's like, ah, he goes, he goes, you'll be surprised. I'll be surprised if they even want to rehearse. What are you talking about? Corn fans are corn fans, man. They're they're they know every. Around. They don't give a crap who I am. It better be a damn good show, I right? Mean, it's like they pay good money, and these are lifers, man. They're not just anyway. Uh, sure enough, we did not rehearse one day before my first show. I was dry heaving in Dublin, Ireland, in the backstage dressing room because we ran the set the day before at the venue, and then the stuff I was playing. I was like, okay, I kind of, yeah, yeah, maybe. And I was watching YouTube. I was watching Joey's endings. I was watching some of David's old endings, trying to combine everything and going, oh, what am I doing? And uh, Jonathan Davis calls me up that night. I'm in the bathtub just like, this is the most bizarre thing ever. And John goes, hey, man, do you know that song, Love Song? And I'm like, 
no, I don't. He goes, yeah, well, we're going to put that in third instead of that one. So now he's adding stuff to the set list. And I just was like, dude. <laughs> so, yeah, dude, I was literally dry heaving in the back. Um, and it's we did 35 countries on that first tour, not states. We did 35 countries. Jeez. I mean, it was like literally like Dubai. Russia, uh, Australia, back to the States, go to Canada, go to Japan. I mean, dude, it was like the globe. I mean, some bands go there on a world tour. They go to Canada and a couple of places in Europe. When Corn says world, they mean the globe. They mean the world. It's like, dude, it's like, so again, I thought I was a hired gun. But how did the, how did the, how did the, the first rehearsal, not rehearsal, but when you ran through the tunes, were you I, like, oh, I feel good. Like I can play this show. I, I knew I was confident in myself. Right. But it doesn't matter how confident I was in myself. This is for corn, right. corn fans. Still to this day, baffle me, man. They're, they are some of the most dedicated mofo's you'll ever meet in your life. And everyone always says that. Wait till you meet an Iron Maiden fan. Wait till I get all that. But there's people that it's it's kind of nuts. I mean, the people right. with all twelve album covers going down their leg, and now I'm up to like what I counted seventeen of my faces on fans' backs. And I mean, dude, it's like. It's kind of nuts. It's like, uh, so I remember the running through the songs. I remember how powerful it felt. I knew it was going to be powerful, but it really felt like when I hit my kick drum, it was like, whoa. I mean, it was right. no joke. I mean, the power these guys have. And uh, I just remember going, I want to make sure it's the heaviest thing I can bring, you know. Right. And at, and at that time, I was endorsing D drums, and I had this little acrylic kit. It was 10, 12 mounted, 14, 16 floors and with 222 kicks and uh i remember after the first week i'm like i need some bigger drums i need to go to 24s i need to go 12 13 up top 16 18 or a 20 floor right right just because it's the, the tribally stuff they do it's really massive and spread out you know um and, and smaller drums make you want to play more technical stuff more mm-hmm. you know so but uh then two years goes by and i'm still like what is going on? You know, I'm waiting for them to say like, okay, that's it. And I was still putting feelers out. Right. And then uh, 09 hits and they're like, Hey man, we don't want you going anywhere. And I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere. They're like, let's figure out some paperwork and, and make you in. I'm like, what do you mean make you in? They're like, make you a member. I'm like, me? Like I, after two years, I still didn't think I was going to be in this band. You know? Right. It was kind of weird. And uh, I thought to get some Mohawk dude with sleeves and I, and they're like, no, man, you're you're really taking shape, and and uh, we really want you to be a part of this and start writing with us. And I want you to start going to meet and greets. And I'm like, whoa, because going to a core meet and greet, they're like, who the hell are you? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's like Jonathan, you saved my life, Fieldy. I can't believe it, Monkey. Who are you? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it, it was literally like I'm like, yeah. Uh, and now I'm proving myself because these fans don't care about my experience, and I'm on 82 records. They could care less. It's like you're some new dude in my favorite band. Right. And I understand because I'm sure. a fan of music. I didn't want to see new singer in Alice in Chains. I didn't mm-hmm. want to see, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, it. I'm the same. I, I get it. Yeah. But if it wasn't me, someone else would be in corn. They're going to live on. Mm-hmm. So that's what the fans had to kind of remember. Like, they're, they're, if it wasn't for the five core original members, I wouldn't be in this band, obviously. You know? Right. But uh, the original guy decided to take off with no warning, no advance, no nothing, just buy. Left the fans high and dry. That made a lot of people upset, you know. Um, at least excuse yourself from, from the band. That's my theory. Like if sure. I was something that sold 40 million records and won three Grammys, that's kind of a big deal. You impacted a lot of lives. 
say, say something. So, you know what I mean? Like, right. hey, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Heart's not in this anymore. I'm not feeling it. Sorry, you guys, but I'm out. And it's, right. so there was this was kind of like this permanent hiatus thing where even I didn't know. Even up until a couple of years ago, I'm like, hey, we're doing the 20th anniversary of the first record. They're probably going to ask the original guy to come back, and they never did. They're like, no, we want you to do it. And I was like, wow, now I'm playing 100 percent that first, mm-hmm. which isn't me. Um, so, and the cool thing when I got the gig is Jonathan's a drummer first and foremost. He's like, hey man, you can honor the records how they're played, but we we hired Ray Luzier for Ray Luzier. We want your input, and if you're hearing something, play it. And that was a very cool, cool thing for him to say because. You know, I've done a lot of gigs where I've like tried to play note for note like the record. And right. So through the years, they've really become my songs as well. You know, and it's. I mean, I think it's it speaks to the the <clears throat> commitment that the band has of saying one, we want you to be a member of the band. So just to for people listening, I mean, we've talked about this before, but to clarify, there's two situations you can be in a band. You can be a hired gun. You're sort of an at will employee, and once you get home, there's no guarantees that you're going to go back on the road again. You know, you're you uh at the end of the year you get a 1099 and that's it but if you're a member of the band you you're part owner of the business so you share in the profits you share in um you know the all the business decisions with the band and and all that what's that (laughs) good and bad at the good and bad yeah if the band loses money you lose money too that's yeah that's the scary thing yeah it's a business um but i think it speaks to their dedication to you of one saying we want you to be a member of this band and then two we want your creative input. We were not necessarily going in a different direction, but we're going in a direction. We're going in this direction with you, not we're going in this direction and we're just going to take you along. Yep. And it's, and it's with Brian head Welsh coming back in the band, what, six years ago, that's five or six years. It really meant a lot to me being, I wanted the four original up front, me in the back, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Cause he really unique sound, of the two guitars with Monkey and Head and Fieldy, <clears throat> no one plays like them. No one, the tuning, they're one of the first people to do the, those low tunings and messed up kind of chordal things, and weird, scary notes. And um, to to have that, it's now it really feels like a powerful machine. You know, right. um, Brian got back in, we did the Paradigm Shift, which I'm very proud of that record. Um, it did very well for us, and we did some really good touring. With our new one, uh, the Serenity of Suffering, uh, especially with Nick Raskulinic producing it. But for those who don't know, you know, from Foo Fighters to Deftones yeah. to Alice Chains to his resume is just ginormous, and he has a way of making the band feel like they're supposed to feel. You know, mm-hmm. he was we had such a great time making the record, and Josh Wilbur mixed it, and it takes a really good mixture to mix a corn record because you have these sub lows, you got eight oh eights, the drums have. To to come through this wall of massive seven string guitars and, right. uh, and he just knocked it out of the park I couldn't be more happy with the new record I think it's a great representation of everything that we are up to date you know? right 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 <laughs> what, um, what, what's the mental shift for you once you become a member of the band and so the way that you approach your career now because you're not you're not having you don't, I'm guessing you don't have feelers out because you're you know you're in this band so Sure, you have other projects, but like, yeah. how does it change for you mentally? Is it a is it a sense of more sense of like security? I hate that word, but you know, yeah, yeah, that is a bad word because I I know what you're talking about, but it's there is no security in any job, you know of that, course. especially the music business. You know, yeah. you know, I could get a call today going, "Hey, dude, we're done. That was mm-hmm. been a good run, and what am I going to do? Cry and sit here and 
no, uh, that's my mentality because that's all I've ever known is one gig ends, another one's going to start, <clears throat> or I might struggle for a little bit. <clears throat> With this, when they told me that, I was like, my brain, because those first two years, I was still like doing people's records and I was doing a movie thing and I was teaching a couple of lessons. And I remember doing a clinic tour when Corn took a break and I remember Fieldy going, wait, wait, what did you do? I go, it's drum clinics. I just go to local music stores and play. And he goes, well, you, you don't have to do that, you know? And I'm like, no, no, I want to do it. <laughs> I know I don't have to do it, but it's, see, I don't come from, and I'm not saying they didn't, you know, they became huge rock stars and they stayed on this cloud and they didn't work for it because they did. But I know, a whole, I don't know the rock star life. I know right. working your butt off and hoping to God that this gig doesn't end before this because I can't pay my phone bill and I got rent coming up and mm -hmm. it's, I know the struggle. I, I, my CPA would laugh at me every year because it's a big giant roller coaster. One year I make a ton of money, the next year nothing. And it'd be right. like, what happened? I'm like, shut up, man. It was a dry year. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so when I got this and they told me I was a member, I was like, man, this really changes a lot for my mental state because that's all I've ever known is, is pushing for the next gig. And, and right. I would, I, my phone was still kind of ringing at that time. And, and I'd be like, man, I'm sorry, I can't do it. But I have this. My friends love me because I would give them these gigs. Right. And I'd get calls and they'd be like, dude, I can't believe you put my name in for that. But I was in such a rut and you just, you don't even know what that means. I'm like, I do know what it means. You know, and yeah, that's what, I've been there. Yes. And I tell my wife every year, like, I want to see a pile of dates show up. I'm like, wow, okay, we're still doing this. And people, we just had the most successful Euro European run that we've ever done. 80% right. of the shows just sold out. In Man, 2017. I, I saw some pictures that you posted and I was just like, holy shit. Like some of the, I forget where it was, but just, I mean, there was a lot of pictures that you posted and there's just yeah. like hundreds of thousands of people. Out of control, man. And they're really, I don't know, there's a good buzz going on the band again and there's a great morale and momentum and, and it's just, you know, we went through a weird period where we were doing a dubstep record and pissed some fans off and now we're just back in this big force, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, mentally it's weird. Like I just I squeezed out. I'm in a side band called KXM. Mm -hmm. um, you listeners can check out. We just did a bunch of videos on YouTube, and the record is actually out right now. I was gonna say when we were talking back and forth, you said that the record just came out. Yes, and uh, um, it features George Lynch from Lynch Mob and Dokken and Doug Pinnock, who's one of my favorite singers and bass players on the planet, um, in a band called Kings X. Oh, and, I remember that. Yeah, so we have two records out. Is this is a new one called Scatterbrain right now, and then. Our first one's just KXM straight. And the reason I can squeeze out these records is because we do everything one song a day. You know, we booked 12 days of studio at a time. We, did, we wrote 13 songs, no rehearsals, no nothing. We'd literally show up at noon. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? Put you know, all these pieces together of the puzzle. By 6 p.m., I was tracking drums for the record. Wow. So it's a very sporadic note. You, know, you don't have time to overthink anything. That's what I love about it, you know. Um, but I'm real proud of it. But but obviously I can't tour with KXM because I'm so busy with corn. So, um, but I can you know I'm really proud of those two records as well. <clears throat> so are you? So what do you? What's your schedule like now? Are you guys on the? I'm just pulling up your. Uh... Yeah, we we're going to South America. We start in Bogota on. I fly on Easter on Sunday. Oh, uh, okay. And we go to South America. We're playing six or seven shows down there, and uh, we just got done with Europe. We did an amazing run over there. Um, we did the UK in December and so we're, we're, we have a long way to go promoting serenity of suffering. Right. So we have, uh, 
great states, U.S. tours coming up. We're going out with animals as leaders mm-hmm. uh, for two weeks in theaters. And then we hit the big sheds with Corey from Stone Sour um, all summer long um, across the states. And we, it's Skillet is playing, Baby Metal, um, a band called Dead, D-E-D, and Yellow Wolf, of all people. So it's mm-hmm. a crazy tour we're going out with. And uh, <clears throat> we get home from that. We're going to Australia. And Japan, it, it, we're just going to keep going. So there's a lot, lot of grounds to cover, you know. How um, many, how many dates do you guys play a year? Man, or does it differ when the album, when you're on a? It does. It, it when the album comes out. We're not one of those bands where there's a cycle. Quote. Right. It's we just go. I mean, it's. I mean, we're in freaking London, five days before Christmas, playing a sold out show. So, it's we just kind of go. You know, it's, right. um We all have families, though. You know, so we we try not to go. out longer than three or four weeks tops, you know, mm-hmm. without going touching home base, you know, that's the only thing that sucks about being this busy. I never thought I'd be touring in my forties, to be honest. I thought, I don't know, I'd be teaching at some school or I don't know. And, uh, but the oh, reality really? is, yeah, I did. I didn't really think, but I, and we were, we never take it for granted. We feel very lucky, fortunate to still be doing this. Mm-hmm. It, it, the band's 45, 46 and 47. I mean, we're, we're not 25 anymore, but I look at the Metallicas and the Maidens and all the, Megadeth and all those guys are still out there doing it. it it's motivating to us, you know. And right. uh, um, like I said, we're we're stronger than ever right now, so it feels that's, really great. That's great to hear, man. And you de- you deserve all of that too, man. It's been oh, you've been you've definitely been uh, been busting your tail here for for years and years. So it's weird, man. It's a, it's a weird business. I mean, like if you told me 15 years ago that I'd be in corn for 10, I would have laughed in your face, right? You know, because <laughs> it just seemed so. So far from likely, you know, and, and that just goes to show you, you never know who knows if Army of Anyone wasn't managed by Corn's management, if I'd be sitting here talking to you about it right now. Right, so, right. Uh, you never know. That's why I always tell people, even if you don't really like the gigs, like most people don't know, but I put on disco wigs, I put on an albino, you know, white wig, play funk, and I play three sets of covers through the 90s off and on. There's an agency called Perfect World Entertainment, mm-hmm. and uh um, Metal Shop was one of the main bands I was in who are now Steel Panther. So a lot of people know who Steel Panther are. I was the original drummer of that band for six years off and on at the Viper Room. So, right. But I would put a wig on and play to a click track and, you know, you needed something when somebody would take you off salary, you need something to pay bills. So Steel Panther, be- was kind of, they're kind of like, uh, 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 what was the name of the band? Final Tap. No, the other one. Uh, in Rockstar, what's the the? Band oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, uh, I can see Zach Wild and and Jeff and all those guys. I forget uh, what the hell stand, they name. Shout it! I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Stand up and chat. Yeah. It's a lot like that. Steel and Dragon. Rock, Steel Dragon. That's it. Yeah. It's it started out being a comedy thing. We we would just be playing covers at the Viper Room every Monday night, and. Uh, I was just like, this is the dumbest thing ever. What am I doing? This is like, I'm playing covers at midnight on Viper Room on Monday night. This is, and uh, there's 12 people there, 15 people. And next thing you know, Chad Smith would show up. Hey, man, let me sit in. Sure. You know, right. Steven Tyler would sit in. We'd go in the walk this way. He'd get up. Meatloaf would show up. Papa Roach. All these just random weird bands would just, and next thing you know, there's lines going down both sides of Sunset Boulevard and it's selling out and they can't let any more people in. We get a raise and I'm like, and then Ralph's like, I want to start doing original stuff. I'm like, why would you want to do that? This is 80s cock rock stuff. What right, are we? Right. And then, and then it's at that time, I got, I got the David Lee Roth gig, and I started 
getting serious with Dave. And every time I'd leave, Darren Leader, who's now in Steel Panther, uh, would, would be my fill-in. And after a while, they're like, hey, dude, every time you leave, the chemistry changes. And I'm like, but I'm playing with Dave Lee Roth, and you guys put wigs on. And I don't really understand the. And they're like, yeah. yeah, but we're really taking this serious. And I didn't realize how they really were taking it serious. And uh, I, I love them to death for doing what they do and, and sticking with it. And I think it's amazing. Um, uh, we do festivals all around the world. And they'll, they'll be like two or three bands below us. It's amazing. That's nuts. <clears throat> yeah. It's crazy how those little, like these things that start out as just like this fun thing. Like all the guys from the Conan O'Brien band. So they were, yeah. they were a band in New York. And everyone used to come and see them all the time, you know, right. and then like there's a line out the door and all that stuff. And then when they were looking for um, when Conan got his gig and they were looking for a band, they were yeah. like, well, why don't we just hire the guys that we go to see all the time? And they hired everyone except my buddy James, who's the drummer. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, because they wanted because Max was going to sure. was sure. going to do it. And then after they moved to L.A., they were like, well, Max isn't going to come with us. We need a drummer where they were like, well, we'll just call James. So now he's playing with them. But. But it's just amazing that they were doing the same thing. They're like, we'll just have some fun in, in New York yeah. and play. And you never know what's going to happen, where it's going to go. You know, no, you never know. No, of it. That's the thing, man. It's like, and I'm still not too proud. I mean, last New Year's, I put a wig on and played disco in Phoenix, Arizona. I mean, the agency called me up. Corn never plays on New Year's. And they was like, hey, man, do you, do you want work? And I'm like, what am I going to do? Sit at home, watch the ball drop, or am I going to go make some money? Right. That's, so. But it's awesome. Like you talk about humbling, man. Playing the stadium with corn and then putting a wig on, carrying your drums up a flight of steps, and you know, yeah. playing, get down the night in brick house and it, with a wig on with shades. You're like, whoa! Is so never get too uh, excited on your gig because you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. You know, I always tell people. I've seen a lot of people come to LA and, and they're super nice and humble, and all of a sudden you see them a year later, like, hey, what's up, man? Yeah, I got this gig. Hey, I don't really have time to talk to you, kind of thing. And you're like, right, dude. Don't yeah. think about it. even getting the slightest attitude or ego because you never know that tomorrow's – no one's got a crystal ball. Mine's in the shop. So. Yeah, exactly. It's like – what do they say? Be nice to people on the way up because you may have to pass them on the way down. Dude, it, it's so true and people – I don't get it at all. And, and Especially when you get signed on, on a band, it doesn't really mean anything because you never know what the future is going to hold and you're relying mm -hmm. on these other guys. And, you know, uh, this is Corn's 23rd year. I didn't think – that would be going i mean october starts my 11th year right so it's like insane it's almost i mean you're almost at the halfway point you know where like you've yeah. been in the band i've know. been in almost longer than the original drummer now because he he quit um because joey like i said in 07 did the right. so he was out in 06 i've almost been in longer you know so right it's crazy. of course so if people want to follow you or or keep up with you or because do you yeah. teach too do you teach you know, it's funny. I just I was showing you my my studio here a little bit. Um, I have three kits set up in my studio here in Nashville, and um, I got I kept turning people down. And I, my wife's like, "Why are you turning these people down? Why don't you just give a one off here or there, like do one lesson?" Because I can't give weeklies. I'm not home enough. Of course. And so I started doing it. Um, uh, there's, there's a band in Nashville called the Dead Deads. They're really good. And this girl um, contacted me. She's like, "I just want." one lesson and i'm like sure why not and she came over and she's really good and she just it, it made me miss teaching because i was showing her some technique stuff and taking what she had and trying to show her some other ways of doing it and, and incorporating four-way coordination and all this and i was like man i i really miss teaching you know mm -hmm. um don't get me wrong i'd much rather rock out in front of twenty thousand people every sure. night. But 
But when I'm here and I'm off, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I gave like three or four lessons in the last, uh, you know, um, several months. And I, I had a blast doing it. Nice. Uh, but people can contact me. My, my Instagram's uh, Ray Luzier Corn, mm-hmm. just K-O-R-N at the end of Ray Luzier. My Twitter's Ray Luzier One, just the number one. And my Facebook is Ray Luzier Official. They can go on the, the fan page there. And actually, a lot of people... Um, know my email, my old one. I have like five or six email accounts. If you want to contact me direct, my uh, main old drum one is the words Luzier. So it's L-O-S-E-E-A-R at AOL.com. Like the word lose and the word ear so, at AOL. Spell that again one more time. L-O-S-E-E-A-R at AOL. Okay. Yep. Yeah, the, and, uh, rocking the AOL. Yeah, dude. I mean, well, I got a Gmail. I got a me account. I got everything. <laughs> but that's my, that's my first account I ever had since 97 when I got my first Sony Bio computer. Nice. And uh, yeah, I never got rid of it. It's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> my, pop, my pop still rocks his AOL. Too. Actually, I still have an AOL email. I just never check it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Vin, I was, we were just off tour with Vinnie Paul. Uh, hell yeah, open for us in Europe. And me and Vinnie were swapping emails. And he goes, yeah, dude, AOL. And I'm like, you too. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's 53, you know, right. 46, he's, he's pretty funny. Yep, yep. Well, Ray, I want to uh, thank you, first of all, for, for taking the time to chat with me. It's been great to sit here and, and get to know you and also congratulate you not only on the corn gig, but just the, the success that you had over the years. And you definitely, definitely deserve it. You've, you've, uh, you've put the work in and, you know, there was some luck there, but there was definitely the preparation, which is, is paramount. So you could have been the luckiest man in the world, but if you don't, if you didn't put the work in, you know, you never would have got the gigs that you got. So thank you, man. I appreciate all that. It of means course. A lot. Of course. And, uh, other than that, I will, uh, I'll get you all this stuff when, once it's released and, but I do appreciate you, you doing this and safe travels out there on the road. I appreciate it, man. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Best of luck for everyone. Thanks man. Bye buddy. See ya. That wraps it up with my man, Ray Luzier. And for the links and everything, all the information that we talk about, you can visit drummersresource.com forward slash session 264. I always do show notes for every single one of these podcasts. So check it out, drummersresource.com forward slash session 264. Also, how many of you out there are not following Drummers Resource on Instagram or on Facebook or Twitter? doubling down a lot on on instagram and i'm just putting out a a ton of content on there so i would like it if you give me a follow it's just at drummers resource it's super simple and you can uh follow along and stay up to date i'm gonna start doing some more story stuff and all that so that's at drummers resource on instagram on instagram uh give me a follow i'll appreciate it and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace